Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to I Fought the Law, as recorded by The Clash and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Sonny Curtis. Sonny began his music career in Lubbock, Texas, playing lead guitar in Buddy Holly's pre-crickets band, The Three Tunes. He landed his first hit as a songwriter when Webb Pierce took his song Someday to number 12 on the Billboard Country Chart in 1957. He went on to his own performing career both as a solo artist and as the longtime guitarist and vocalist for the post-Buddy Holly Crickets, while continuing to write songs that became hits for others. These include the Everly Brothers' Walk Right Back, Andy Williams' A Fool Never Learns, the Bobby Fuller Fours' I Fought the Law, Bobby Goldsboro's The Straight Life, Leo Sayers' More Than I Can Say, and Keith Whitley's number one country hit, I'm No Stranger to the Rain. In addition, Curtis wrote and performed Love is All Around, the theme song to the Mary Tyler Moore Show. His music has been covered by Roy Orbison, Tom Petty, The Grateful Dead, The Stray Cats, Brian Adams, Johnny Cash, Bruce Springsteen, Waylon Jennings, Hank Williams Jr., Joan Jett, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, Ben Crosby, Chet Atkins, Johnny Rivers, Green Day, Harry Nilsson, Glenn Campbell, and many others. He's a member of the Musicians Hall of Fame and the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame. Sonny was also inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1991. In 2012, he and his fellow crickets were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which also counted Sonny's I Fought the Law as one of the 500 songs that shaped rock. Similarly, I Fought the Law is on Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Man, I Fought the Law is such a cool song. Oh, yeah. And, and to think that, you know, had Sonny Curtis done nothing else in the music business, that alone would be such an achievement to hang your hat on. But, uh, I mean, man. It would definitely be enough to make him a songcraft guest. Yeah, for sure. And he, uh, but he, he was one of those guys that just kept cropping up throughout rock and roll history and, and appearing. Um, you know, have you heard the whole, the, the Bobby Fuller, you know, Bobby Fuller had the first hit version of, right. of I Fought the Law. Have you heard any of that stuff about his mysterious death? And, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was like rumors going around, that, you know, I, I think it was kind of ruled at one point as suicide or, or possibly an accidental death. But um, then there was so many kind of like questions surrounding. I think there were even question marks written on the, uh, on the police report. Yeah. Or the um, autopsy maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. it showed up on unsolved mysteries. You know, people <laughs> yeah. weren't quite yeah. sure what happened that I, there was even a theory. I think one of his band members at the time thought that Charles Manson had something to do with it. Right. Right. And, and, uh, I guess he was found in a, in a car yeah. and had like inhaled gasoline vapors or, or something like that. And, right. and, you know, there was suggestions that he got involved with some women who were, uh, mafia connected. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's a wild story and all the conspiracy. I mean, I think there's even a kind of like a book about it maybe, right. but, um, just to think, you know, the, the wild tales of, of rock and roll history. And, Dude. but you know, there's a guy who lost his life, who was, uh, an incredible artist and showed so much promise. You think, man, what, what would have been next after I fought the law? Yeah. You know, and not the kind of thing though, that we normally bring up 
in our interviews. I mean, that <laughs> right. a, a little bit of a heavy, tragic situation there. I mean, we, you know, we, we could have talked a lot more about sort of the Buddy Holly tragedy as well with yeah. Um, yeah. with Sonny's um, involvement with the crickets. Yeah. But there was so much Sonny to talk about. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, and I think it's really great that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted the crickets mm. uh, in 2012 because Buddy Holly had been inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame years ago, um, but it really was an oversight. I think a lot of people don't realize that um, Buddy Holly and the Crickets was a a band they yeah. they recorded, and basically there were only um, certain songs that had harmony vocals on them, and certain songs that did not have harmony vocals on right. them. So if a record was just Buddy Holly's voice with no harmony, it was released under the name Buddy Holly. Hmm. And if it did have harmony vocals, it was released under the name The Crickets. So right. a lot of those Buddy Holly songs, like That'll Be The Day, and Not Fade Away, Oh Boy, Think It Over, Maybe Baby, It's So Easy. I mean, these, these were songs that were um, released the records on the label say the crickets, yeah, not right. Buddy Holly. Um, and it's one of those old school music business tricks. Like DJs will play the songs more often if they're not credited to the same you know person, right. um, which is great. But it's really cool that the that the crickets were inducted, and of course, um, you know, Sonny has was a part of the band before they became the crickets and then uh after buddy went to new york and then of course died shortly thereafter um became a real mainstay in the crickets and they recorded for for many many years after buddy was gone so it's cool that they got that recognition yeah and and you know i mean Sonny proved himself a million times over his contributions to the music world are you know are are many Uh, all the way to writing the theme song to the mary tyler moore show i mean wow i mean everybody knows that song you know we're gonna make it after all yeah Um, i think the thing that that interested me so much about talking with Sonny is he kind of came back to the work ethic like i'm not going to turn down work you know i was always looking for opportunities looking for ways to to be a working songwriter and to get my songs heard and you know uh just a a really a cool guy in that regard and, and thinking of applying you know treating the songwriting profession as a professional job. Yeah, I think the theme of this interview kind of emerged as when opportunity comes, be like Sonny Curtis and don't say no. Yes, I agree. Just say yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> with that, let's hear from Sonny Curtis. Yes. Sonny, welcome to Songcraft. Ah, it's good to be here. Now, you were raised on a farm in Meadow, Texas, about 25 miles outside of Lubbock. Tell us how you first got into music and what your earliest musical influences were as a child. Well, I had some uncles that uh, <clears throat> I called them uncles. They were my uh, dad's brother's wife's brothers, so they're okay. not officially <laughs> uncles, but they were the Mayfield brothers, and they were real bluegrass uh, uh, aficionados mm. or whatever the word is, and uh, they were uh, ranchers and really strong, sturdy guys, and they were uh, also... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, good bluegrass musicians. As a matter of fact, Ed Mayfield played uh, uh, for Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys oh, wow. in the yeah. uh, mid-50s, and uh, they were a great influence on me. Yeah. And uh, that's that's kind of uh, how I got started. I had two older brothers, and they played, uh, we, of course, loved bluegrass music, yeah. and they played bluegrass, and that's, uh, that's kind of how I got started at a very early age. All right, right. <laughs> Now I understand that when you were in your in your mid-teens that you started playing fiddle and guitar in some some country bands with some guys there in Lubbock, people like Jerry Allison, Bob Montgomery, and Buddy Holly. Um, how did you get to know those guys and, and kind of start playing with them? 
Well, actually, I was, uh, uh, I, uh, when I was about a freshman in high school, I won a talent contest, which was the very first Lions Club talent contest in Brownfield, Texas, which was uh, 10 miles south of where I grew up. And uh, I had been on TV on uh, the Bernie Howell show, and I won't go into all how uh, that happened, but uh, Bernie Howell, uh, he uh, had me come up and be on TV. So I was sort of uh, known, because it, his, he, he was an organist and had a 15-minute show on the K-Dub television every evening, and right. uh, he uh, uh, had me uh, uh, kind of play uh you know, a couple of numbers on his shows. And so I became known kind of all over the South Plains. Mm-hmm. And Buddy and Bob were familiar with me, uh, Buddy Holly and Bob Montgomery. Right. And um, uh, I had a friend in Meadow who moved to Lubbock, and he befriended them. And he said, man, you got to meet these guys. And so he took me up one day, and uh, and I met Bob first, and then we drove over to Buddy's house. <laughs> and um, I, I can say, uh, which I've said a lot, we didn't <clears throat> waste any time on small talk. We got <laughs> right into music. We just yeah. got our guitars and started picking. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. But that's how I got uh, involved with Buddy and, and Bob. And then I became a member of their band. Yeah, right. Well, in and, and 1956, you and Buddy and then bassist Don Guess, you traveled to Nashville and recorded a handful of songs for Decca, uh, which included one of your original songs, Rock Around with Ollie V. Now, who was Ollie V, and how did that song come together? Uh, Ollie V was a black lady uh, that was married to uh, Willie Robinson, and he was a helper for my father on uh, on our farm uh, in uh, in Meadow. My dad was a cotton farmer, mm. and uh, th- that's uh, I. That's all that she had to do with the song. Uh, she uh, she provided the name for the song. <laughs> <That's> a good <laughs> name. And uh, that was uh, that was pretty well it. Uh, she I doubt if she ever knew that I uh, wrote because they moved not too long after yeah. that, and I, she probably never knew that. As far as rock around with Ollie V, uh, I was a big Bill Haley fan, of course, uh, as everybody was right, and, right. Uh, around there, and. Uh, I was sort of uh, hooked on rock around the clock and all that stuff, and uh, I was uh, really t- trying to write something in that vein, and that's how rock, rock around with Olive E came about. Yeah, yeah. How did you guys get from? Um, you know, I know you played fiddle as well as guitar, and and I know even like with Buddy that starting out, you guys were were playing country music, and then obviously this was a, a time when music was was changing very rapidly. How did you guys kind of switch over into the what was becoming rock and roll? Well, you're right. We did start uh, playing country music, and we played uh, on all the uh, local uh, TV shows and radio shows, and. <laughs> And uh, grocery store parking lots, and right. <laughs> and uh, automobile parking lots, and you know that sort of thing. Uh, when Elvis Presley uh, uh, came into being, uh, that was uh, 
uh, it really turned our heads around. Mm, sure. And um, he came to Lubbock, and the date was actually uh, about, I, it was roughly January the 5th or 6th of uh, 1955, hmm. and uh, we were all still in school. And uh, But we uh, we went to see Elvis Presley, and uh, it just blew our socks off. And the next day, we started uh, uh, booking out and playing um, uh, Elvis Presley music. I was a big Chet Atkins fan, which right. uh, uh, Scotty Moore, he, his style was sort of that Chet Atkins style. Right. So I, I sort of, uh, it, I, I slid into that real easily. Mm. But he... Uh, uh, Buddy was the lead uh, singer in the group, and of course we did some background stuff. But uh, I played lead guitar, which was, um, uh, you know, like as I said, a Scotty Moore uh, kind of uh, uh, deal. And uh, Don Guess could play that slap bass like Bill Black. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. And uh, we were basically. Uh, w- we became Elvis clones overnight. <laughs> right. Well, I know that, that not long after you guys went to Nashville to record, that you ended up leaving the group with, with Buddy and, and Don Guess. Um, and I know you toured with uh, country singer Slim Whitman for a while, and I know that you, you were in the backing band for the you know Philip Morris Road Show, kind of one of those package show deals backing several um, country stars. Uh, and, and I'm curious, why did you opt to, to leave the band and, and head out on the road as a backing musician at that time? Well, to tell you the truth, as I said, we were sort of Elvis clones. Right. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact... Uh, we weren't nearly as cool as Elvis, so I thought we played pretty well and uh, <laughs> and all that. But uh, uh, there already was an Elvis, and uh, Buddy was beginning to sort of stretch out and uh, and kind of create his own style. Hmm. And uh, Jerry Allison uh, was uh, the drummer. As a matter of fact, when uh, Elvis got DJ Fontana, we said, okay, that's it. We've got to have a drummer. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's where Jerry Allison came from, hmm. and um, anyway, we uh, uh, we sort of uh, uh, sort of separated naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buddy wanted to start playing more lead guitar, uh, and uh, and I, of course, um, I got offered a job with Slim Whitman. He came through Lubbock. Uh, his regular guitar player, uh, his wife was having a baby in Nashville, and he couldn't go on the tour and a guy named Sam Hodge who worked at Adair Music Company where I worked uh, uh, part time right. <laughs> well full time except when I was picking <laughs> and um, anyway Sam Hodge played steel guitar occasionally for Slim Whitman in that Hoot Rain style which was uh, Slim Whitman's uh, uh, a regular steel guitar player and Sam Hodge said uh, man uh, Slim needs a guitar player to go up in the northwest and uh uh, would you be interested? And I said, yep, I sure would be. <laughs> right. And uh, so that's how I got on the road with Slum Whitman. Yeah. And by that by that time, Buddy and I were sort of uh, drifting apart. Mm. And then uh, I, I got another job after that Slim Whitman tour with the Philip Morris Country Music Show. Yeah. And that's a long story I won't go into. But yeah, I, yeah. Uh, uh, a songwriter friend of mine named Wayne Walker uh, got me involved with that, and I went on the road with with them. And in the meantime, Buddy 
and J.I. and uh, Joe B., they had gone over to Clovis, New Mexico, and got with Norman Petty. Right. And uh, they uh, recorded uh, That'll Be the Day and all those right. good songs. Yeah, yeah sure. And, uh, so it, we just sort of drifted apart naturally. Yeah, yeah. Well, and in this time, you weren't just backing people up, but you were writing your own songs, and you had your first Billboard hit as a songwriter in 1957 when Webb Pierce took your song Someday to number 12 on the country chart. Someday. of love I may fall in love again Someday when the torch for you grows dim I may find happiness then Tell us how that came about. Well, um, this is really funny. (laughs) Um, You know, I was... uh, tell you the truth i'm I'm still kind of dumb but i was so dumb back then <laughs> uh, uh hank snow uh came through lubbock and this guy dave stone who owned kdav uh country station he booked those tours and uh he would have buddy or me sometimes together sometimes separately uh, and uh he booked me just with my guitar to go to open for hank snow right and uh you guys are not going to believe this but i was I went on stage and then before Hank Snow came on and I sang all of his songs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought, boy, you know that, you know, I'm going to impress him, and I did. <laughs> but uh, he had a great uh, a, a road manager named Eddie Crandall, uh, who was actually instrumental in getting Buddy in uh, in our first deal, mm. uh, uh, well, Buddy's first deal with Decca in Nashville. But Eddie Crandall got me over the side, and he said, you know, uh, if you're going to make it, you got to have your own songs. Those are Hank Snow songs. <laughs> right. And uh, and like, uh, and he was nice about it, you know, to yeah. give him credit. And, and Hank didn't, he didn't rag me too much. But uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, I, uh, uh, I thought, well, man, there's nobody in Lubbock that writes songs, so I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. And uh-huh. I wrote four songs, and one of them was Sunday, and I sent them down to Nashville to my friend Wayne Walker, uh, who worked at Cedarwood Publishing Company. Right. And he played it around to people, and finally uh, Webb Pierce heard it, and he said, i got to do that. Yeah. Wow. I, was, uh, I was 18 at the time, Jeez. and my memory serves me right. And wow. uh, <clears throat> I, <laughs> I, I couldn't believe that I, I, I had a song that charted but with a big artist like uh, Webb yeah. Pierce. Yeah, well, it sounded like you had the natural gift if one of your first four songs is a Webb Pierce number 12 country hit. <laughs> yeah, and another funny story about that is uh, uh, BMI, Broadcast Music Incorporated, uh, Norman Petty, uh, he asked me, he said, are you a member of BMI? And I said, well, no, I'm not. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> right. I thought it was a club. And <laughs> And he he joined. He got me. I filled out the form and he got me joined up with BMI. And uh, when I got my first check in the mail, I thought, man, I love this club. Yeah, I'm, glad, <laughs> I'm glad I joined. Best club I ever joined. They pay me dues. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, in 1958, you released your original song "Wrong Again" as your debut single on Dot Records, and that same year. Buddy Holly moved to New York while the other Crickets, J.I. Allison and Joe B. Maudlin, stayed in Lubbock. And you joined the Crickets as the lead guitarist, and I know that you guys 
toured uh, as the Everly Brothers backup band for a while. But you were doing the crickets thing, and you were still also recording as a solo artist, uh, most notably with the choral record single Talk About My Baby in, in uh, 1960. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. Going to talk about my baby because my baby's untrue. Talk about my baby because my baby's untrue. Call me up on the telephone. Let's talk about my baby because my baby's gone. Talk about my baby because my baby's gone. Did you think of the crickets at that time as, as a permanent gig, or were you leaning more toward pursuing your, your solo career at that time? Well, actually, uh, we were all uh, just teenagers. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess by 1958, I was no longer a teenager, but we were we were sort of rudderless, and I had uh, I had the opportunity to record, and uh, uh, and I also had the opportunity to uh, play with the crickets because when Buddy moved to New York, J.I. Allison, Jerry Allison, and Joe B. Malden, they said. Uh, I want you to come back into the crickets as the lead guitar player, and they got Earl Sinks from Amarillo, who sounded somewhat like Buddy, mm, to right. be the lead singer. The reason they wanted to stay in Lubbock is they said, man, there's no place in New York where we can ride our motorcycles. <laughs> that's, the, that's the kind of vision they had and what we all had. But it was mainly just an opportunity. Jazz said, hey, man, go ahead and record. You know, As a matter of fact, uh, the uh, I got a deal after Dot with Coral, and uh, and I and Jay and Joe B played on my my record uh, okay. Red Headed Stranger and and talk about my baby yeah and uh, so they they really didn't mind but as I said we were kind of rudderless and the um, the Everly Brothers called because uh, Jay and Joe B and Buddy had backed them one night uh, down in Florida on a tour because the Everly Brothers in those days used pickup bands. Mm, right. Like when they'd go into a town to play, they'd just call the Union, and they just had some disasters. <laughs> and uh, and uh, one night they didn't have a band, and Buddy and Jay and Joe B said, we'll back you, we know all your songs. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and so uh, and the Everly's just loved it. And so uh, when, uh, it, when we got the opportunity, uh, the Everly's called and said, man, would you guys come up to... Uh, uh, Portland, Oregon, and do the centennial uh, or bicentennial, whatever it was, with us. And Jay, I said, well, I didn't know the Everleys at the time. And and Jay, I said, if you'll ta- if you'll take our guitar player, we will. And they said, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and uh, it was uh, it was just sort of that haphazard, if if that's the right way to describe yeah. it. I mean, yeah. we just sort of get, said, hey, let's go pick with the Everly brothers. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, some great things happening for you as a musician at that point, but then you're drafted in 1960, and you spend two years in the Army, primarily stationed in France, but you keep writing songs. In that era, you write Walk Right Back, which has been recorded by Andy Williams, Perry Como, Chet Atkins, Bobby V, Anne Murray, a ton of others. And the, the original recording was, of course, by the Everly Brothers, who made it a top ten hit in the U.S. and number one for three weeks in the U.K. Nothing seems to be the same
tell us how you wrote that song and how the Everleys ended up cutting it. Well, I, uh, as I said, you're right, I did get drafted, which, <laughs> which was kind of a drag because yeah. <laughs> it just seemed about, about the time I was uh, kind of get, about to get some traction in the music business, yeah. I got drafted sure. and had to go to the Army. While I was in basic training in Fort Ord, California, um, they uh, they had what they called a day room, which about the only time we had off was on a Sunday afternoon. And I went up uh, to the day room, and they had an old beat-up, bad Sears Roebuck kind of guitar. Uh, nothing against Sears and Roebuck, but anyway, <laughs> it was a bad guitar. But I, I wrote Walk Right Back. I, I had one, wrote one verse to it. I had the lick already, which I... I had the opening lick, which I wrote before I went in the Army, and so I just mainly was trying to put something with a lick. And I uh, wrote one verse uh, of Walk Right Back, and uh, J.I. and Joe B. were living down in uh, uh, L.A. at the time, and uh, I got a three-day pass because I fired expert on the rifle range. Oh, and uh, there were like six or seven of us, and they gave us all a three-day pass, and I used mine to go down to... Uh, Hollywood and uh, Don and Phil were down there <laughs> studying acting at Warner Brothers at the time. Of course, that never did work out. Right. But uh, we went over to see them, and Jass had sang them a song. Uh, and I sang it to them, to Don and Phil, and uh, they said, well, "Man, write another verse, and we'll record that." And <laughs> and to tell you the truth, I did write another verse, but I was kind of busy at the time, and I mailed it to them uh, from uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia. And uh, it's it's funny because when I mailed it to them uh, the next day, I got a letter from Jay. I said, "The Everly Brothers cut your song yesterday." <laughs> 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 they just sang the same verse twice, <laughs> and <laughs> it didn't didn't seem to hurt. But, uh, <laughs> they right. never did get the second verse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I know some of those other versions, they do have the the second verse, don't they? Like yeah, Andy Williams. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That's so funny. Well, at the end of 1960, the Crickets released the album In Style with the Crickets, and you wrote or co-wrote seven of the 12 songs on that album. Um, the Bobby Fuller Four was obviously paying attention to that since they covered three of the tracks from that album, including two songs that you wrote solo, Baby My Heart and I Fought the Law. I break in the rocks in the hot sun, I fought the law. I thought the law has, um, you know, started out being a top ten single for Bobby Fuller in 1966. It's uh, became a top fifteen country hit for Hank Williams Jr. in 1978, and you know that's one of those songs that's been covered by everyone from Roy Orbison to John Cougar Mellencamp to Johnny Cash to the Grateful Dead, and you know there's probably hundreds of versions of that song. Um, what do you think it is about that song that continues to appeal to people after all these years, and and sort of as a side question of that do you have a, a personal favorite version well i do and uh, i can't imagine <laughs> what uh, what the appeal is i wish i could figure it out i'd do it again <laughs> <laughs> but uh oh uh, i you know i've got a lot of favorite versions but i think my personal favorite is hank williams jr oh. i mean uh, he's sort of a supposed to be a country artist but boy he rocked that song to death yeah, <laughs> i mean yeah. it was it was just a great version yeah and um i uh 
you know, I can't imagine where that song come, came from. I just I was sitting around uh, one afternoon uh, in my living room, and uh, the sand was blowing outside, and and it was just, uh, you know, uh, it took me 15 or 20 minutes uh, to write that song. Wow, and wow. what's really frightening is I don't think I ever wrote it down. I just had it in my head, you know. Wow. <laughs> and when we went to New York, uh, we were uh, to record Inside with the Crickets. We uh, uh, were desperate for new songs, and I said, well, I... I actually had written I Fought the Lost Heart of as a country song, and I said, uh, how about this, you know, and we were riding down the road. Uh, as a matter of fact, J.I. and I wrote more than I can say in the back seat oh, wow. of uh, the car The car on the way to New York City. We'd sit back there and pick a lot, and I sang I Fought the Law, and, and uh, we sort of transcribed it to a rock and roll song. J.I. put those great uh, gunshot uh, snare licks at the front and yeah. uh, transcribed grabbed it to a straight eight feel and voila we had a rock and roll song Man, that's <laughs> and awesome. that's that's just um you know it's as simple as that i, yeah. I, I i'm really thankful for that guy that teenager <laughs> well as a matter of fact as i said i was beyond teenager but i mean right. that young guy that that wrote that at the time man <laughs> <laughs> right yeah right. M- maybe not as dumb as you thought you were right? <laughs> well <laughs> i don't know about that <laughs> Well, that that song more than I can say that you that you mentioned. I mean, that's another one of the classics on that In Style with the Crickets album, and that was later resurrected by Leo Sayer, who had a major pop hit with it in talked a bit about writing that one but I'd love I'd love to hear more of the story of how that one came together well uh, as I said that uh, Jay and I were uh, were riding along in the back seat of the car uh, on the way to New York City trying to write uh, a song and uh, we had a little Gill guitar which is just perfect for the back seat and uh, uh, we started out with whoa whoa yay yay which is really funny because uh, up till the minute we recorded it we were saying uh, what can we put there? We didn't realize that that was our hood. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That, that's where the dumb part comes in. <laughs> and we said, you know, what can we say there, man? <laughs> and, but we we finally wrote that song, and uh, um, our version of on that album was not the best in the world, but it was, uh, you know, the best we could do. And uh, Bobby V cut it first, and he had a big hit in England. Uh, it was a backside hit in the United States mm, on yeah. the back of Staying In, which was written by John D. Loudermilk, another great songwriter. Sure, and a yeah, friend of mine. Yeah. But anyway, uh, we uh, uh, we recorded it, and Bobby V. picked it up, and and then uh, uh, you, I don't know, you may have heard this story, but uh, Leo Sayer was recording an album in London years later, and. Uh, he was in his hotel room, and they had all the uh, uh, they had uh, the al- album almost finished. And uh, you, you, I'm sure you know what KTEL is that they yeah. were playing old songs on uh, KTEL yeah. in London, and uh, they played uh, more than I can say. But Bobby V, 
Leo Sayer, man, I always loved that song. And he went to the studio the next day and said, let's cut more than I can say. Jeez. Wow. Timing <laughs> is everything. That worked that's out. what you call luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, after you got out of the Army, uh, the Crickets were based in Los Angeles, and they recorded a handful of albums for Liberty Records in the early 1960s, including California Sun in 1964. And you wrote a song on that album called A Fool Never Learns, which became a big hit for Andy Williams. They say a broken heart. Now, were you actively pitching your material to other artists in that era, or were they just hearing your songs on the Crickets records and just choosing to cover them? Actually, that was uh, uh, Cricket Music. Was uh, Jay and I had a publishing company uh, along with our manager, which mm, didn't work all out, out that well. But anyway, he was <laughs> pitching songs, okay. and he actually pitched that to Andy Williams before we recorded it. Oh, I right. think uh, some of this chrono- chronology might not be quite right, but. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, I think he pitched that to Andy Williams before we recorded it. Okay. Uh, I think we recorded it because, hey, Andy Williams could. It must be good. <laughs> it must be a good song. <laughs> right. uh, and uh, uh, Andy Williams uh, had, uh, you know, top ten record with it, and it was, uh, uh, I don't, that's about all I can remember. I mean, yeah. I remember writing it. I was just in my apartment one night, and, uh, out of something to do, so I, when I was out of something to do, I always <laughs> tried to write a song. <laughs> good plan. Yeah, it um, seemed to be a good use of your time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the late 1960s was a period that showcased both your success as a songwriter, but also your diversity as a songwriter. Um, you had your first charting country single as an artist with the self-penned "My Way of Life," uh, but you also had a top 20 pop hit with Gary Lewis and the Playboys, um, Where Will the Words Come From, which Roseanne Cash later covered on her Seven Year Ache album in 1981. And then you also had an adult contemporary hit with Margaret Whiting's version of I Hate to See Me Go. Um, and that was one that was also covered by the West Coast country artist Molly B. So your songs are finding a home in you know pop and country and, and all these various genres. Uh, I'm curious if you thought of yourself as a pop guy, a rock guy, a country guy, or did you just think of yourself as kind of a songwriting jack-of-all-trades? Well, I, I kind of thought of all three. I, uh, <laughs> I was just in the music business, you know, and I, I always kind of thought it was a sin to turn down work. <laughs> uh, you know, if I got called for a session, I wasn't a session musician, but I got called every now and then, and I'd go pick on the the session and and uh, and when I if I had a little slack you know I, I worked you know yeah, I, yeah. I wrote songs and uh, if we got a gig uh, to go on the road with the crickets I did that and uh, 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 and if I got a recording deal I did that and uh, so <clears throat> I sort of uh, was just uh, I think this answers your question I was just in the music business and if anything came up man I was ready and willing yeah <laughs> sure yeah. Yeah, n- never say no, right? Uh, no. <laughs> never, say no. N- never say no to work. <laughs> right, right. Well, in 1968, you released a version of your song, The Straight Life, which appeared on the country chart. And when Bobby Goldsboro cut it soon after, 
It went to the top 40 on both the country and pop charts, as well as the top 10 on the adult contemporary chart. Suddenly all my silly thoughts disappear. She comes to me softly with crackers and beer. Winking and blinking and blowing my ear. Running away with my mind. It's great to be in love. I'm not really thinking of leaving the straight life behind. Now that's a song that went on to be covered by Glenn Campbell, Bing Crosby, Gary Lewis, Al Hurt, and several others. What was the inspiration for that one? Uh, well, again, uh, I, I really can't. Uh, I really can't say I, <clears throat> I needed a song because uh, for myself because mm. I had a record deal uh, with Snuff Garrett and his label uh, Viva Records, and uh, so a deadline was the inspiration. <laughs> well, uh, actually, it was. You know, <laughs> yeah. and I. I recorded a song with Leon Russell, which uh, he, which Delaney Bramlett and Mac Davis wrote, yeah. and uh, Snuff didn't like it, and uh, so he said, uh, "We need a song that you wrote." And I think Snuff was more interested in my publishing than he was about <laughs> being an artist. Right. But be that as it may, <laughs> yeah. uh, I I wrote the Straight Life, yeah. and uh, as a matter of fact, is J. I. Allison he. Uh, he thought of the title. He said, "I straight life would be a good title," mm-hmm. and uh, so I wrote that. Uh, just you know, trying to f- figure out something to record, and I played yeah. it to Snuff, and he said, "Oh yeah, man." And I think Snuff actually was the uh, Bob Montgomery, my old friend from the olden days, back with Buddy and Bob. He was producing uh, Bobby Goldsboro. Mm-hmm. And Bob uh, called me and said, man, I want to cut this with Goldsboro. And I said, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Bobby Goldsboro was hot, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, that's kind of how that came about. And then the rest rest of the people, Glenn Campbell, uh, you know, was, uh, he had that TV show. And I think his album that that was on, uh, which featured Wichita Lineman and uh, other good songs, uh, I think it shipped like two million. Mm, that, yeah. that was a, a great album to, uh, or a great cut for me, uh, yeah. Glenn Campbell, as was Goldsboro and Bing Crosby and all the rest. Sure. Yeah, you know. yeah. That's one, that's one of my better copyrights. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of, you know, recording your own material as an artist, um, in 1968, you released the first of Sonny Curtis, which went to number 21 on the country album chart um, and included several significant songs, such as I Want to Go Bumming Around, which was later cut by Dean Martin, uh, Destiny's Child, which was later recorded by Waylon Jennings, and then your own solo versions of, of songs like A Fool Never Learns, Walk Right Back, and I Fought the Law. And though that was actually your most successful album, chart-wise, I understand that you were not particularly happy with, with the sound of it and the way that it came out. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, uh, I wasn't, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this goes back to Snuff, uh, who just passed away recently, and Snuff and I were great friends. And, uh, but uh, as I said earlier, I think he uh, was more interested in my uh, songwriting than he was my uh, artist Mm-hmm. Uh, artistry, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> uh, and J.J. Kell, actually, uh, a name I'm sure you're familiar with, sure. he produced yeah. that album, or was the engineer. Wow. He and I sort of produced it together, and one of the reasons I wasn't satisfied with it is because we, uh, we, di- we just put a rhythm section down, and I had done uh, scratch tracks vocally, 
which meant means that you're going to come back in and put another vocal on <laughs> later. Yeah. And as, as far as I'm concerned, some of those vocals don't measure up. We just, mm. uh, you know, like walk right back. I think there are some flat spots in there, and, you know, uh, we wanted to uh, mix it a little better and put some more instruments on and, and that sort of thing. As a matter of fact, where will the words come from? Uh, Glenn D. Harden uh, just he put, he did a beautiful. Who actually was a co-writer on that, or maybe I was his co-writer. Anyway, uh, he put a beautiful uh, intro uh, that was just cut wild uh, to, that we were going to attach to the song later. Mm. And uh, and when uh, Snuff put it out, he just, he didn't even put the intro on it. Then the song just starts, Jeez. bam, you well, know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so yes, you're right. I I wasn't real pleased with that, but. Uh, I was pleased with some of the results. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Well, you released another album in 1969 called The Sonny Curtis Style, which included your first top 40 country single and one of my favorite titles of yours, Day Drinker. Um, I understand that just before that record, you went back to school to study music arranging. Tell us what prompted that decision and what it did for you as a writer and composer. Well, I... Uh, I, I I studied guitar in high school, and I but I just never quite got familiar with the, the works of music, you know. Like uh, I, m most of it was, uh, I guess you'd call raw talent. Mm. I just, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to know more about music. And as a matter of fact, when we were on the road with the crickets, I used to uh, uh, study. Uh, you know, music riding down the road. I I bought books and uh, I'd, at night I'd go over, you know, like uh, uh, stuff and, and riding down the road. I'd say, okay, uh, one sharp is G, two sharps is D, hmm. three sharps is uh, A, four sharps is E. That right. you know that kind of thing. Trying to figure out what you were already doing. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would try to do something riding down the road rather than be bored. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yes, in uh, 1970, uh, I, uh, I had the opportunity uh, to uh, to go back to uh, go to school, and I, I enrolled in the Sherman School of Music, and uh, I, uh, I studied uh, flute, piano, guitar, arranging, wow. <laughs> uh, composition, you know, theory, the whole nine yards, yeah. harmony, and uh, so uh, uh, I didn't. Uh, I only stayed about a year, but I learned so much yeah, yeah. Uh, from that experience. And I have to say uh, quickly that I got into uh, uh, commercial writing, and I had a, a wonderful partner. His name was Don Pystrup, mm. and he was a musical genius, I think. And, mm. man, uh, uh, working with him was a college education. Yeah. And uh, so there you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know that you, you kind of had this... Uh, second branch to your career as you mentioned you know doing commercial jingles both writing and, and singing for several very successful uh commercial jingle campaigns and and getting even into writing for television and of course in 1970 you wrote and performed love is all around the theme song to the mary tyler moore show how that came about and and how it ended up being chosen for the theme for the show 
Well, that was uh, that was just a fluke deal. I got an old buddy named uh, Doug Gilmore, who uh, is no longer with us, sadly, but he was just he worked for the Williams and Price Agency, and uh, I, I met him through Roger Miller, who was another good friend of mine. And Doug had been the road manager for Roger Miller, but as I say, he was working with William and Williams and Price, and he called one day about eleven o'clock, and he said, "Man, they're going to do." a sitcom with Mary Tyler Moore, and they're going to need a theme song. Are you interested? And I said, uh, give me about two seconds. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, I'm interested. He came to my house uh, uh, during his lunch break that very day and dropped off like a four-page format. Not a script, but just, you know, a girl from the Midwest moves to Minneapolis, gets a job at a TV station, that sort of thing. Right. And... um, uh, not a lot of information, which I think was probably helpful because a lot of information will bog you down. Hmm. But <clears throat> anyway, uh, I called him about two o'clock and said, "Who do I sing this to?" <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, this all happened in one day. Wow. And he sent me over to uh, uh, CBS. I'm sure you know those buildings at the beginning of Gunsmoke. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> those big. Uh, arch-type building, yeah. and I, uh, he set up an appointment with uh, James L. Brooks, who was the executive producer of the show, wow. and uh, and I went over and met with him, and uh, he, I'll have to say that he was rather cold when he came in, and it, hmm. this is a big room, not as big as a gymnasium, but in, on that order, is a big room, and it yeah. was totally empty, except for a, a, a black telephone on the floor. And James L. Brooks had two uh, ironback chairs uh, brought in, and I uh, got my guitar and sang him uh, the song. And uh, he said, hmm, let me hear that again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I sang it again. And before I left that afternoon, he the, uh, that room was full of people. He kept calling people and come down and listen to this. Hmm. And uh, I, I began to feel real. Uh, I began to feel real confident hmm. about. Uh, my uh my position at that point he's finally had a, a cassette recorder sent in and he said i want to take this song to minneapolis with me this weekend because i want to uh, work off this song uh when they cut the first you know the first part of the show whatever yeah. those, those things are called the pilot and, and that's that's how that song came about wow you know, the same year that you wrote that song, you also appeared on Eric Clapton's self-titled debut solo album as a vocalist. How did you get to know Eric and, and uh, get the opportunity to work on that record? Well, uh, Eric was in America doing a tour, and uh, he was uh, on tour with Delaney and Bonnie, mm. uh, right. Delaney and Bonnie Bramlett. Right. And, uh, and we were good friends of Delaney, and that's how we got to hanging out with Eric. And... Uh, and I and so uh, and J.I. pitched after midnight to Eric. That's uh-huh. that's how Eric uh, because J.J. Kale wrote it, and of course J.J. was a real good friend of ours. Yeah. And J.J. Uh, J. Uh, said, "Man, I think that song would be great for Eric." And so uh, when uh, Eric recorded it, I think it was like the last one of the last songs he recorded for that album. He said. Man, I want Sonny and J.I. on this. That's cool. <laughs> and J.I. played some, uh, uh, he played some percussion, maybe tambourine or something, and uh, and I uh, joined in with uh, B- Bonnie and Delaney on the background vocals. Hmm. And uh, and it was just, you know, a kind of a one-off deal, just how 
he said, I want them on this song, man, because yeah. we were sort of good old buddies by that time. And, uh, and uh, that's <laughs> it's just simple as that. <laughs> so, yeah. you, so you're part of the group vocal in the back going, After Midnight and all that? Yeah, that's the, the, Don, Bonnie and Delaney and me. That's uh, cool. That's so cool. Speaking of Eric Clapton, and, and we all know that Eric was a huge J.J. Cale enthusiast, and you know you were already working with J.J. and, and were, were good friends with him. Um, and I noticed that he recorded your song, I'm a Gypsy Man, on his classic Troubadour album in 1976. And that was the, the LP that introduced the world to his song, Cocaine, and uh, you know, which of course Clapton cut too. Um, but I'm a Gypsy Man is actually the only song on that record that J.J. Cale did not write himself. Um, and as a songwriter, you know, it's great to get a hit. Um, but I imagine that it's also great when fellow songwriters who usually only write their own material gravitate to your work. And, you know, the obvious monetary <laughs> rewards aside, does it mean more to you to have a big radio hit? or to be recognized by your fellow songwriters? Oh, well, that's a hard question, because I love that mailbox money. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But, uh, uh, oh, I I love to have have had uh, J.J. uh, record that, and he did such a wonderful job. Uh, I recorded that myself, and his version is uh, quite different uh, from mine, Mm. and uh, I... I, you know, it was just great to have yeah. J.J. Uh, record uh, uh, one of my songs. Yeah. And uh, he was a great writer and a, a great artist and great guitar player and a terrific friend. Yeah. And uh, I, I miss him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, in the mid-1970s, I know that all the members of the Crickets moved to Nashville and you know worked a good bit with Waylon Jennings. And you released three albums for Elektra Records between 1979 and 1981. Um, and in that period, you also had another top 40 country single as both writer and artist with uh, The Real Buddy Holly Story. I just came down to see The Buddy Holly Story guess it don't matter none, but they told it wrong. So I'm going to try to tell you what really happened. But is it going to be tough to tell a story that long in a song? You mentioned pretty much at the start of the song that you make it clear that the song is your reaction to the film, The Buddy Holly Story, which I guess had, had come out not too long before um, before the song. Um, in, in what ways did you feel like the movie did a disservice to the history that you actually lived? Well, uh, I wrote that song after we saw the movie. Uh, J.I. and Joe B. and I went down to Dallas for the uh, uh, world premiere of that movie. Yeah. And uh, uh, I just had total uh, (laughs) recall (laughs) and and took exception to... uh, to the movie and Gary Busey's a great actor I'm not uh, taking anything away from him but to me 
he totally missed the mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they uh, and he knew us, and uh, because J.I. and Gary Busey had started a movie which got canceled. Really? Uh, 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 that J.I. had written with another guy huh. um, called Not Fade Away, and. Yeah. Uh, uh, so we knew, and Gary Busey was playing J.I.'s part, the drummer in that, so he knew uh, he could have researched that through us a little better. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, one thing, uh, we'll just start at the beginning, we'll take exception to the way he dressed. He was kind of a sloppy dresser, and he wore white shoe, uh, white socks with his black shoes. And <laughs> Buddy Holly wouldn't have never done that. He took great care in his appearance. Right. I mean, he had his mom uh, 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 like taper his jeans right. down to the, uh, you know, like he always made sure that his hair was in place and all that. Yeah. And uh, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and as far as uh, like Mr. and Mrs. Holly not only supported Buddy, but they supported all of us boys mm. around Lubbock, mm. and uh, they in the movie they made it look like they were just like opposed to Buddy being in the music business. Yeah. And also, uh, there are no mountains in Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> and uh, then uh, uh, another one, and I was there for this when we recorded in Nashville for Deco. Like Owen Bradley was our producer, right? Uh, and uh, I'm sure you know knew Orrin Bradley. I mean, he sure. he was just a great guy, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and we were putting our best manners forward. I mean, it was yes, sir, Mister Bradley, whatever you say, Mister right. Bradley, yeah. and that kind of stuff. And then in the movie, they had Buddy punching out supposedly Owen Bradley, like the <laughs> uh, the producer. Right. Uh, I, I took offense at that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's enough. Uh, uh, that's yeah. enough to write a song about. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I imagine that, you know, you go all the way to Dallas to see the premiere. You're probably kind of looking forward to this, and then that must have been quite a shock. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. Well, another one of your major successes as a songwriter came in 1989 when Keith Whitley took your song, I'm No Stranger to the Rain, to number one on the country chart. I'm stranger to the rain But there'll always be tomorrow And I'll beg to steal or borrow a little sunshine And I'll put this cloud behind me That's how the man designed me To ride the wind and dance in the world king I'm no stranger to now, by that point, you'd written many hits, and I'm sure you had approached the writing process in various ways. In general, however, are you a writer who sets aside disciplined times to work on the craft, or do you just write as the songs come to you? Um, I, uh, at that point in my career, I was, I was mostly uh, being a songwriter, although I... I had been with the crickets, you know, through the Waylon Jennings period and all that. But yeah. about 1985, I uh, I sort of decided I would uh, not do that anymore. Hmm. And uh, other than going on uh, uh, tours in England and Europe uh, as a, a songwriter artist, uh, which where I played, uh, you know, very intimate kind of uh, venues where there'd be like two or three hundred people and that sort of thing. Uh, and I'm sorry I got a little away from the question, but uh, uh, other than that, uh, I uh, was mostly uh, writing songs uh, full time. And I, I would, uh, I set aside time. I'd go in, uh, down to my writing room in the morning uh, and uh, get my cup of coffee, 
and stare at that blank page and mm-hmm. try to write something. <laughs> yeah. However, uh, I'm no stranger to the rain. I have to give credit uh, also here to my co-writer, uh, Ron Hellard. He actually came up with that title mm. and because we were writing songs together, and uh, he came up with that title. And uh, when uh, <laughs> he was very prolific, he'd we'd go to lunch, and on the way back to the, my writer's room in Nashville, he just lay one title on me after another. I think, wow. I think after that title, he he mentioned like maybe four titles, and I said, "Go back to I'm no stranger to the rain." Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's uh, we we wrote that in a couple of hours, and uh, then uh, uh, Keith recorded it, and uh, and uh, I have to say that uh, Keith Whitley is one of my was one of my favorite artists, and yeah. I think he. Uh, will uh, go down as one of the great all-time artists. Uh, yeah. He was such a great singer. Uh, I had a, a, an opportunity to be at a couple of his sessions, and man, they just say, "Okay, Keith, go put your part on." And man, he nailed it the first time. Oh. I mean, hmm. uh, he was amazing. Yeah. And uh, he recorded another song of mine called "That Stuff," and uh, it was a song also that Ron and I rec- uh, wrote together. Right. And I just can't say enough about Keith Whitley. Mm. Yeah, yeah, incredible artist. Um, well, one more question for you, and, and we'll let you go. But uh, there are so many notable songs that we could mention, such as Ricky Skaggs' 1990 hit version of He Was On To Something, So He Made You. Um, there was the, the theme to the TV show Evening Shade, which he wrote in the early 90s. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd be here all day if we tried to talk about all the great songs you've written. But I'm curious to know if you had to pick only one song that you would be remembered by 100 years from now, which one would you choose? Uh, I think probably Walk Right Back. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and um, I don't know if I could have another one, but I wrote a song for my daughter called It's Not Easy Being 15, mm-hmm. which uh, John Connolly put on an album, and um, and I recorded on one of my albums. But uh, yeah. anyway, uh, I like that song, but I guess... I guess if I only get to choose one, it'll be Walk Right Back, because mm-hmm. that was sort of the, the song that kicked it all off for me, sure. you know. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel okay letting you have two. Yeah, I think you're allowed. <laughs> yeah. I think you're allowed to. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, Sonny, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us today. This has been just great hearing yeah. your, your stories and about your career and, and some of your uh, thoughts on, on the songwriting process, and it's it's just an honor for us to speak with you. I appreciate you guys calling me, and I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.